0: Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us.
1: This evening is the 12th sermon in our sermon series on the first letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And our text this evening is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, through 5, page 992 in your Pew Bible. Now, the Apostle Paul continues to explain to Timothy the purpose of his letter as he begins chapter four. We've seen how he set out The theological foundation of the church in verses 14 through 15 of chapter 3, and its grounding of communion with the Lord Jesus in verse 16. And our text this evening, Paul now goes further. He sets out the context, the time, the situation that define Timothy's ministry at the writing of this letter. You see, something has happened in Ephesus, something that often happens in the history of the church. People have drifted away from Christ. Subtle influences have gradually edged away from a clarity of trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus The influence, as Paul goes on to explain, is to add something extra to the free grace of God. And that little something extra clouds the simple trust of the believer. And if it remains unchecked, it will ultimately eat away at that trust until there is nothing left. Indeed, in the course of the history of the church, there have been thousands, I could say millions, that have succumbed to this simple human insecurity as we fight sin that still remains in us, namely, simply resting on God's grace simply resting on the fact that your salvation and mine in Christ is his free gift. Now, underestimating that, the problem is a lack of trust or of faith. It's far easier, you see, to add something, to add a legalism, or it's opposite in the vagueness of a mysticism. But what we see here among the Ephesians is that the addition is actually a subtraction. In other words, what do I mean? Well, it's an asceticism. And the tragedy is that the departure was so imperceptible, perhaps clothed in an an anxious piety to do good, to to such an extent that they did not know their faith in Jesus was gradually changing. And this was the case with some of the elders in the Ephesians church. Paul addresses them in the first chapter of this letter. They'd begun so well in the gospel, but now they were hawking a Christian asceticism as a path to a deeper spiritual Fullness, become a real Christian. Instead of looking to Christ's work on their behalf as their only hope of salvation, the only path to godliness, they now set their hopes on denial, an ascetic denial of any sort of physical desire that they might have through rules and regulations. Now, we may recall from our study many years ago. Now I must say of Colossians that Paul categorized asceticism as "do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch." Now we have to be clear here too, because the Apostle Paul never opposed discipline, spiritual discipline, for the purpose of godliness. Indeed. In verses 7 and 8, we have his famous injunctions, train yourself for godliness. And godliness is of value in every way. And we know that spiritual disciplines sometimes involve restraint. But it's a restraint that's born of seriousness, realizing our predicament as believers in communion with Christ, yet still living in a lost world. It's a seriousness that gives the Christian a pause before they act. But asceticism, the one he's describing here, is altogether different because it involves an intentional denial of things that God has declared to be good, Paul writes. It declares that abstinence from these things is essential to a deeper spirituality. In time, it lays an axe to the life of the gospel. Because the purpose of humanity, indeed, why it was created, is to love God and to enjoy him forever, including his many gifts. So Paul considered asceticism a wicked doctrine. He emphasizes its terribleness in the context of 1 Timothy in a specific way. He attacks it immediately after quoting that great hymn we studied last Sunday that sets out, Christ Jesus is the mystery of godliness. That is the source, the origin of true godliness. So as asceticism described here, not only turns its back on God the Father, the creator of both heaven and earth, but also on the sufficiency, the adequacy of the work of the Lord Jesus. So there's three things I want us to consider this evening. How Paul sets out its origin, its particulars, and then its answer. Its origin, its particulars, and its answer. We see that in these five verses. First, its origin. We have this in verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now notice how Paul begins in a surprising way, we might think, because he says this drift to asceticism came as no surprise. Now the Spirit expressly says, you see, This expression, the Spirit says, is a biblical way of referring to a past prophetic message. It's much like writing, the Scripture says. So the Spirit's clear message here is that in the later days, i.e. the days in which you and I live, some will depart from the faith due to the lure of asceticism, forbidding themselves what God allowed. They make the pursuit of deprivation their purpose in life, rather than their desire for a deeper communion with Christ, and thereby displacing the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice its origin. This isn't just a a category error made by someone thinking too hard, because Paul says it quite clearly, asceticism is demonic in origin. It's diabolical in its purpose. Now, it may take us a moment to consider this truth because it's natural for us to think that there really isn't anything bad about self denial, even in abstaining from good things. But the reality is that Paul's addressing here is that those who introduced a contrived holiness are adding more than what the Scripture reveals thus revealing that it is at the prompting of the devil that echoes through the centuries, to his lies, to our first parents in Eden, taking what God revealed and adding more. We see this in the mistake that Eve makes in her answer. We are not to touch it. Indeed, we are not to go near it. She adds the touch, this extra piece, you see. God is never worshipped biblically by denial of his gifts. And a self-denying asceticism, especially any form of public display, moves one away from worshipping God as he has commanded. And while asceticism begins in the mind of the devil, it is carried on by the wicked, the insincerity of liars, you see, whose consciences are seared. It is hypocrisy. As Paul writes, the insincerity of liars. It's a double lie. A lie of deliberate pretense and a lie of deliberate falsehood. Indeed, these, these teachers don't even believe their own teaching. They appear to be ascetic when folks are watching, but behind closed doors they live their lives as they please. How can they do this? He tells us it's because they have cauterized their consciences, their hearts. Are hardened. They have allowed them to be so, so hardened, they have no feeling, no guilt, and no remorse. The ancient church father, John Chrysostom, makes a play here in the word that is used for hypocrisy. A hypocrite in ancient Greek was also the word for the actor on the stage. And in ancient Greece, the actor would wear a mask. Taking on the mask, you became that character. Put on another mask, and you become the other character. So this is what he says. They utter not their falsehoods through ignorance and unknowingly. Do you see? It's as if they're declaiming like an actor on the stage but as acting apart, knowing the truth, but having their conscience seared. we must always remember this when dealing with such teachers, you see. They are acting. They have a mask on, much like the ancient actor in Greece and in Asia Minor. However self-effacing, however humble, They may appear. The scripture is clear. They are conscious liars. My friends, they are manipulating you. Be warned. It's demonically sourced in the end. That's its origin. What about its particulars? It's in verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So the context of the asceticism in Ephesus is focused on the believers of the church, you see, those who believe and know the truth. So Ephesian asceticism focused on the denial of two great gifts from God, marriage and nourishment. And this ascetic tendency was further fueled by these false teachers, these people of influence in the congregations in Ephesus and the surrounding region. They had what we would say an over-realized eschatology. Now, what do I mean by that? In other words, that the kingdom of God had come to such an extent that the resurrection had already happened and we were now are living lives in this new kingdom all these things that had gone before to be put away, and we are to live completely different lives. Therefore, celibacy was to be preferred over marriage. Now, we know this because in his second letter, 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy about Hymenaeus and Philetus, who taught this, that the resurrection had already occurred and the consequence in their lives that had gone so far wrong that Paul writes that they had wandered away from the truth and were now under a strict discipline. They were denied the fellowship of the Lord's table. You see, this tendency of celibacy over marriage has dogged the Church of Christ for centuries, until indeed the early modern era. It was Anglicans, indeed, those of the Anglican Puritan movement that turned this argument aside and favored instead marriage over celibacy. They glorified a loving, companionate marriage. They affirmed married sex as both necessary and pure. They established the idea of wedded romantic love and exalted the role of the wife in marriage. It's filled with various documents, tracts, treatises, specific to how the godly home is to be conducted. And there's many, many passages that are like this one. When two are made one by marriage, they may joyfully give due benevolence one to the other, just like... Two musical instruments, rightly fitted, do make a most pleasant and sweet harmony in a well tuned concert. So, we could ask here, couldn't we? Why is it that someone would find asceticism so attractive, even to embrace it? Well, I suggest that it's to ease their conscience. The anxiousness is displaced with busyness. Indeed, it's the nature of all hypocrites and false prophets to create a guilty conscience in those who are their followers so that they're open to influence. And there they can then put their teaching. This ascetic conscience, therefore, is soothed by the rules and regulations that the false teacher sets down. And you soothe it by an abstinence. Now, this is dangerous because, you see, to have this sense of abstinence, you can harden your own heart, much as they have done. You can cauterize your own heart. It's dangerous because it gets you to resist the prompting of the Spirit as you study God's Word. Indeed, you might even put God's Word completely away because you now have this program, this way of living your life that you've got from some bogus false teacher. Another reason, I think, it's the activity creates a compensatory righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, all of us understand how we have sin still present within us. And we struggle and we fight against it. Every day is another day, putting it to death. And the way we're able to do that is because it's displaced by the dulcet tones, the beauty of the Gospel, calling us to who we truly are in Jesus Christ. But say someone cannot abstain from selfishness or greed or cruelty or gossip that are listed in the scriptures. They have no place in your communion with Jesus Christ. You know that. Well, maybe if I do something, maybe if I acquire righteousness, I, I can balance it out in some way abstaining from those things, and therefore training myself in such a way. What's happened? Well, you right away realize, don't you, that they've lost God's free gift of grace. And instead of a gift, they've replaced it with the scales, that default position that we all had before we came to Jesus, that if I do good, it'll outweigh the bad. It's a danger, really, isn't it, especially amongst evangelicals. Indeed, John Stott called it our lingering evangelical asceticism. You know, we may recall that view from our own past, this feeling that the material world with its pleasures are tainted in some way, so I must avoid them. I'm not going to go to movies. I'm not going to go to concerts. I'm not going to dance. If you went to Bible college like I did, you had to have a pledge and sign it. You couldn't go and hold a girl's hand. Indeed, you couldn't sit more less than six inches from them. And we had uh, what do they call them? TAs? Is that what we call them in college? The TA? Yeah. They would come and measure. Would you believe? The one that used to get me is you couldn't wear blue jeans. And you had to have your hair above your collar and above your ear. And this was the 1970s when that was the last thing you wanted to have. You couldn't wear jeans, but for some reason you could wear corduroy. That's the danger, isn't it? You become overly focused on these things and you lose focus on the Lord Jesus. The argument they gave us was if we renounce these things, we will become a more sanctified young person. But frankly, it's a false teaching. Now, what's the answer to aestheticism? Well, Paul gives it too here in verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You see, Paul ends by writing the answer for the antidote to any false asceticism. And the answer begins in our first understanding and giving affirmation to the intrinsic goodness of God's creation. We see this, don't we? This verdict that God himself gives in Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, food for nourishment is part of creation. It's what was part of the creation mandate given to our first parents and us as their descendants. We are to steward it. We are to care for it. And we are to use its fruit for our own sustenance. Indeed, Male and female, he created them, the scripture tells us in Genesis. And marriage is a creation ordinance. So neither our identities as men and women, or God's established limits of married life, are to be erased. It's an abomination to think that somehow I can be other than how God created me, either male or female. That sort of denial is the kind of demonic asceticism that Paul writes about. Indeed, in reference to food, our Lord Jesus himself declared in Mark chapter 7 that all foods are clean. And Peter himself had to go through a specific vision. In Acts 10, this sheet containing all the earth's fauna was lowered three times before him, and a heavenly voice commanded three times, what God has made clean, do not call common. You see, we're to celebrate creation's goodness in heaven and earth, the stars, the majesty of the heavens, the beauty of a flower, its perfume, its scent, the wonderful taste of of fruit and vegetables drawn from the vine or from the branch waiting for us and bringing joy to our hearts, to enjoy the animals and seas and rivers and fish, the forests, gender, marriage, sex and family and friends and food. We are their stewards. These are part of God's gift to us. We are not to abuse them. We are to care for them. So having understood creation's goodness, we are to receive it with thanksgiving. We are to acknowledge the author of all the things we have, the author of the feast. Foods are to be received with a prayer of thanksgiving. You see, the answer to asceticism is not mere reception, but it is a reception with a thankful prayer to God as the giver of good gifts. The Gospels have many examples where our Savior consistently blessed God before his meals and offered thanks afterwards. Paul likewise offers thanks. We have an example even as he's in the storm in the Adriatic and the ship is about to be wrecked on the coast of Malta. But they gather together for one meal and Paul rises to give thanks. And tells them all that God will preserve them all and they will all make it to shore alive. But of course, it's not just saying a prayer of grace God is great, God is good, thou we thank Him for our food, amen, pass the drumstick. That does not make our food holy. But what giving thanks does is set our hearts and minds in its true perspective. It is God's gift to me, to my family, to my brothers and sisters, to my friends. It is God's good creation. And the phrase, word of God and prayer, expresses a single idea. The word prayer references excerpts from Holy Scripture that are customarily said when food is given thanks. Now, there are things that we... Do not do, because we are Christians. But an asceticism is anathema. To regard what God has created and still exists as somehow unclean is sinful. To teach that abstention from marriage and certain foods is the high road to closeness with God is frankly blasphemous. To try and reverse it or undo it is equally blasphemous to require abstinence from those who want to be faithful Christians is a treacherous thing, because our lives in Christ are begin in the positive. We are giving thanks for these gifts bestowed upon us for no other reason than God's love, not for what we strive to do to make ourselves acceptable to that love. And Jesus showed us that. Time and time again, we walk in thanksgiving. And with such gratitude, we always give glory to its author, your Heavenly Father and mine. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.